Susie On sitting in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Derek Chauvin's trial for the murder of George Floyd is prompting more than just painful memories. It's sparking larger conversations around criminal justice reform. One key area up for rethinking? Mass incarceration. Over 2 million people are behind bars in the U.S. President Biden has pledged to help end mass incarceration. But does Biden have the country's support? Well, studies show that demographics in jails and prisons are shifting in recent years. They're becoming whiter. And some reformers say that may sway popular opinion on the issue. A recent piece in The Washington Post titled Prisons Are Getting Whiter, That's One Way Mass Incarceration Might End, explores the issue. The co-authors are Echo Yonka, a law professor from Cardoza Law School in New York, and Keith Humphreys, psychologist and psychiatry professor at Stanford University and an affiliated faculty member at Stanford Law School. He also served as a drug policy advisor in the George W. Bush and Barack Obama White Houses. Professor Humphreys, let's start by unpacking the changes here. Talk about the shifting demographic trends in jails and prisons taking place. Well, it's really surprising. So if you look at jails, which is what cities and counties run, in this uh, century, uh, we've had a significant drop in the number of African Americans in jail and the number of Hispanics in jail, by which I mean at any given point, tens of thousands fewer of each of those groups. Any given year, hundreds of thousands of fewer being jailed. Because the system is built to, to hold those populations and they, they, you know, they do not get a break in the criminal justice system, the natural thing to assume is, well, if they're getting out, jails must really be shrinking. But they aren't because as they have left their cells, uh, they've been filled by whites. So the black rate of going to jail in the century is down over 20 percent, but the white rate is up over 40 percent. And that's uh, potentially going to cause a change in how Americans think about incarceration. And what's driving that trend there? Probably at least three things. One is there's been a big drop in urban crime, which means less rest, less people going to jail, and that that group, you know, living in cities would be disproportionately people of color. Meanwhile, we've had collapsing conditions in rural America with rising crime and rising drug problems, which uh, is going to drive some incarceration among whites. And the third thing is we've had some reforms to make the system less racist. You know, the law I think most people know about the crack cocaine disparity, which uh, drove a lot of racial disparities in incarceration, has been cut back or repealed by the federal government and in a lot of states. And some of that effort pushed by reformers has helped make the system, it is not fair, to be clear, but a lot fairer than it used to be in terms of who goes to prison. Well, um, Professor Yonka, in the piece, you all underscore that while black populations are declining, disparities around incarceration are still very real for black people. What is the picture there? So it's exactly as Professor Humphreys has said, but it's one of these things that we've had to learn how to think about carefully. Our mass incarceration system can both be racist and consuming huge numbers of white lives. So, for example, when we have this boom in mass incarceration, it happened everywhere, in black states, black cities, but also in Vermont and Maine. But what is true is that when you look at the disproportionately mass incarcerated, that is, the states with the highest rates of mass incarceration, it almost traces a perfect outline of the former slaveholding states. So what's happened is, even as we punished everybody, we were just hungry and pushed, consumed by punishing African Americans as sort of the specter of criminality. Mm-hmm. 
Well, well, these trends, uh, these statistics around white incarcerated populations fast growing. Professor Humphreys, does that mean at all that the risks for white people to be incarcerated are growing? Yes, they are. And so if you are a white American who has told yourself incarceration is something that happens across the tracks and will never touch my community or my family or my friendship circle, you're wrong. Uh, this is uh, a hungry beast we've created. And as Echo said, it, it, it's quite comfortable feeding on white lives as, as it has fed on the lives of people of color. And that may change the willingness of at least some white people to do something about mass incarceration, because we know from great research by, for example, my colleague Jennifer Everhart at Stanford, that when white Americans perceive a social problem as a black thing, you know, they are less motivated to get involved in fixing it. But if they realize they have a stake in this, too, our hope is that they will become engaged in a way they haven't been up to this point. Yeah. And, and I want to take a quick moment here to recognize that um, some of the folks listening may may have actually shuddered a moment ago to hear that the idea that the whitening of prisons may change popular opinion on the value of mass incarceration. And that's totally understandable. Professor Yonka, you all tackle this in your piece pretty directly by saying the evidence shows that when white Americans become victims of an issue and choose to fight against it, their participation tends to tip the scale on uh, federal action, the latest example being the opiate crisis. That's right. I mean, the shudder is well understood. And, you know, as a black man, I I have to swallow a bit of bitterness and anger when you think about these things. When drug abuse was seen as a black problem, crack cocaine, as Keith said, was a black problem. There was a problem to be kept over there, to be policed and militarized. Just stop it from touching our nice neighborhoods. Our response was cruel. When opioid addiction became seen as a white problem, suddenly we started hearing stories of um, the girl next door, how your friend hurt their back and slowly went from opioids to heroin. Suddenly we humanized people who fell under drug addiction. And though nobody should pretend that we've made a system perfect, We've certainly given up on the idea that we could police and jail our way out of it. So one of the things that we really care about is making people understand, even if it's not morally ideal, that you are making a mistake if you think of our criminal law problems as just black problems. Mm -hmm. And, And it works in the reverse. You know, when whites don't want to support a cause, their slight majority can make a big difference, um, including when they oppose something specifically on the basis of race even willing to make losses for their communities that seem to go against their own greater best interest. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, shutting down public utilities, um, I, and I'm sure there's other examples along that way. And it's important to remember that, you know, incarceration is controlled throughout the country. The federal government's actually pretty weak. There's The 50 states matter a lot. So you have to get everybody on board to change this. And, uh, you know, whites numerically dominate, you know, politically in most of the country. And so they have, they have to be part of this, this to happen. And it is ugly, you know, that it is not enough that we have over 2 million people in prisons to motivate some people, no matter what skin color they are. They don't view that as a monstrosity to be fixed. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, um, you know, some people don't empathize uh, across race very strongly. And even, unfortunately, some people actually emphasize, empathize less, specifically if they're worried about losing status uh, in terms of not being 
the top dog in the American racial hierarchy anymore. So there, there's some disturbing research by Rob Willer and Rachel Wetz, for example, showing that at least some white Americans, if you tell them the black-white income gap is shrinking or you tell them that uh, whites are becoming a smaller proportion of the country, their support for programs that would help black Americans drops. But their support for programs that help white Americans doesn't. Clearly, for some people, this is driven by a sense of, you know, I like the fact that, uh, you know, people of color are being kept down by the system. That makes me more comfortable in my own status. I think it's a fool's game to play in the long, long term, but that is, that is part of what goes on in our country. And I want to play some sound from Brian Stevenson, a U.S. lawyer and criminal justice reform champion on uh, PBS News Hour, talking about that issue. Let's take a listen. We've got the highest rate of incarceration in the world, and nobody seems to give any thought to that. Mm-hmm. You know, having six million people on probation and parole really paralyzes whole sectors of our community. That we have 70 million Americans that have criminal arrest histories, and that then makes it harder for them to get loans or jobs, is a real crisis. Professor Humphreys, you referenced Jonathan Metzl's popular and stunning book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, in your piece. That gets into how many poor whites voted against their best interest around health care. Any lessons to be learned there? Yeah. So, you know, that work, Dying of Whiteness, shows that some white people are willing to cut off their nose to spite their face. So, you know, it would, be, it would benefit them to have health insurance. Um, but because it benefits blacks, they are against it, and they will hurt themselves to keep that, that hierarchy going. And our hope is that when people realize that you cannot count on the incarceration system to keep defending that hierarchy, it will devour you, too. It is, in fact, doing that more and more each year will motivate that group of people to realize, you know, this is not your friend in your struggle to hang on, you know, to whatever your fearful and and resentful status is in the society. It will come for you, too. Please get on board and let's all work together. And I know this sounds kind of kumbaya, but here we are. Please all work together to dismantle this destructive system. Professor Yanka, now that we know that prisons are whitening, it clearly exposes the error in thinking that incarceration is a, quote, black problem. Can you uh, expand on that? Sure. What we have to learn and, and to play off what Keith is saying is just how much all our fates are bound together. And you would think that we would have now enough examples. You've already referenced the opioid crisis. One of the things people have to think about is the connection between criminal law and the opioid crisis. If you build a system that only ever saw drug abuse as a criminal law problem, when an epidemic of abuse hits your country, you'll have no structure to deal with it other than policing. So now we've had to start from the ground up. Despite the work of some people over generations, we don't have a solid, robust system to deal with this epidemic. And it has cost, we should be clear, more lives than the COVID pandemic. I think the COVID pandemic is a second great example. There's lots of evidence, some of which has already been referenced. Heather McGee's new book is really great on this, about how stingy our social network is, how stingy our social welfare network is, in part because we're driven by a view of the undeserving poor, which is almost always racialized. And so when we don't have a social safety network and then we're hit by a pandemic, 
we've seen what's happened, right? We've seen people having to go to work despite getting ill. We saw an infrastructure that was unready to deal with the COVID virus. The point over and over is when we build a system that is fueled by our meanest policies, by our racial anxiety and anger and contempt, ultimately it costs every American, white, black, Asian, and otherwise. And so we have to learn this lesson once and for all that our fates are ultimately bounded. And if we're not ready to build for any of us, we will fail all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor Yanka, you say that uh, making known the whitening of prisons could help Americans appreciate how a furnace fed by racism eventually consumes us all. Uh, do you have hope that the public conversation around this issue could change? I think in part because of the whitening of, of mass incarceration, whether it be the specific racial demographics or just the sense of it, I think it is changing. I mean, you have a left-right coalition now that has become more powerful than ever before. Uh, you see foundations like the Koch brothers, this libertarian, deeply conservative group railing against mass incarceration along with social justice organizations. I think after a long couple generations of, frankly, locking up huge numbers of black and brown people, we have just learned that it is expensive, inefficient, cruel, and doesn't solve the social problems that we aim it at. And in part, it's because people have looked around and realized it's not just those people over there that are being hurt. Professor Humphreys, uh, you worked as a drug policy advisor under both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. What did you most take away from your time there with this issue, and and what do you wish people understood? Well, I saw you know multiple drug epidemics in that time, and what I I wish most people understood is that fundamentally. An addicted person who is of one race is, in most ways, identical to one of another race, which is, you know, they need help. They need some compassion. Yes, they do things that make us angry. They may commit crimes. Uh, They may disappoint us as friends or family members. But fundamentally, they are human beings who will respond if given an opportunity to change and given support. And we didn't do that for, for crack cocaine. And we have done it, thank goodness, for the opioid epidemic. And I'm, I'm glad the country has at least learned. Maybe they learned the wrong, you know, through the wrong route, through race. But I would now like us to extend what we've learned about opioids to everyone. What we need is to extend that sympathy to every single person who has a, a drug addiction. And, you know, that includes George Floyd, by the way, um, you know, the, the uh, person with whom you opened your your piece. There's been a fair amount of denigration of him or implication that he deserved what, he, what happened to him because... He had a drug problem, and like, no, that's not acceptable. Every person with a drug problem is a human being. They should have all the human rights of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we've touched on a few, but is part of this perception problem stemming from biases on who is considered a criminal? Um, maybe it, it's uh, socioeconomic. Uh, Professor Yonka? One of the really painful things about George Floyd's death, for example, is his trial at least allowed America to see what I think of as an origin story of drug abuse. I mean, so George Floyd is somebody who suffered some injuries, started um, on opioids like lots of other people. He and his girlfriend then slipped into abusing opioids, sometimes taking other people's opioids, and then finally turning to the streets. My point is not at all make it seem quotidian, right? Everybody's drug fight must be 
respected and helped and supported. My point is, those are origin stories that were denied Black people for a long time, right? White people were seen as somehow getting involved in drugs and to be helped. And Black people were seen as, you know, oh, it must be something about their fathers or maybe their mothers weren't around or maybe they just don't care to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So as Keith was saying, you know, what we have to do is extend this kind of common humanity and see that it's not just the Rust Belt white town that leads to, as people have now described them, deaths of despair, right? Those are the same unemployed, frustrated, beleaguered people when they were in inner city communities as well. No more pathological, no less deserving of our help, and no more aspirational. You know, George Floyd wanted to be a good father and wanted to pull himself out of drug addiction and move on with his life, just the way any white person with an addiction would as well. And finally, in in the minute we have left, Professor Humphreys, as a psychologist, what are the rules for building empathy for people we see as different from us? Well, that's a really great question. And one of the things we know is that for, for teams of people who are diverse, they will appreciate their similarities when they realize they have a shared opponent or a shared goal. And this could be a perfect example of that. I mean, for different reasons, um, we all have a stake in ending mass incarceration, and and we can have our different reasons. Uh, There are, you know, um, there are good reasons to do it from a social justice, a civil rights point of view. People could do it out of self-interest because they don't want to pay the taxes for all these prisons because this is an extension of their their religious faith. There there are many different things that we can bring to this, but we can feel uh, for each other because we all agree that this is a shared problem. It will only be resolved if we work together, and that is a great way to build understanding across people who are very different in many ways. And, and Professor Yonka, what, what do you wish more people understood about the system, um, and what drew you to this work? Well, so for me, um, obviously I teach criminal law and I teach policing, but actually not just my life experience, but my professional work is in uh, political obligation. And so I really do think all the time about the ways in which we are built to be in a society together and how much it matters that we build our society for, you know, each of us in religious moments who might think the weakest of us is the center of so many faiths. And frankly, the history of seeing over and over how when we don't build systems for everybody, how costly it is eventually for everybody. And so that's the lesson that you know, I see in my work all the time and sometimes feel like I'm just standing on a hilltop shouting over and over. That's Echo Yonka, a law professor from Cardoza Law School in New York. Also with us, Keith Humphreys, a psychiatry professor at Stanford University and affiliated faculty member at Stanford Law School. They are co-authors of a recent piece in The Washington Post titled Prison Are Getting Wider. That's one way mass incarceration might end. We'll tweet that link out on our Twitter at WBEZ Reset. Thanks to you both. And that's today's Reset. For more great conversations around the topics that matter to you most, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and take 30 seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. Meanwhile, Sasha's back tomorrow, and I'm Susie On. Thanks for listening to Reset from WBEZ Chicago. Chicago.